Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Hello, and thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your host, Mary Lou Stevens, former ABC radio presenter and author of The Last of the Apple Blossom. It's my absolute pleasure to talk with Karen Brooks today. Karen Brooks is the author of 14 books, historical fiction, historical fantasy, YA fantasy, and one nonfiction. She was an academic for over 20 years, a newspaper columnist and social commentator. She has a PhD in English, Cultural Studies, and has published internationally on all things popular culture, education and social psychology. Recent novels include The Chocolate Maker's Wife, The Locksmith's Daughter and The Fatal Shore. Her latest novel, The Good Wife of Bath, is a terrific read and really, really funny. It's what we all need right now. So welcome, Karen, and thank you for The Good Wife of Bath. It's a terrific novel. It really is. Oh, thank you, Mary Lou. That's so kind of you. And just so people know, I'd like to say how we go back years and years. Um, first met when you worked at ABC Sun, uh, Sunshine Coast Studios and you used to interview me and make me feel so welcome and warm and it's just lovely to be in this situation with you again. And can I just say I absolutely loved your book and I think you know, readers will be eagerly queuing to get a hold of it once it's released in a couple of weeks, The Last of the Apple Blossoms. It's a marvellous, marvellous book. Mm, thank you so much, Karen. But we're here to talk about The Good Wife of Bath. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's your fifth historical novel for Harlequin Mirror. So what inspired your move as an author to historical fiction? Yeah, I think I can blame my academic background. Um, I always did a lot of research for my novels, even when they were YA fantasy or the historical fantasy. And um, I'd go down these rabbit holes and 
really, you know, try to make the tough decisions about what to include or exclude from the narrative. Because as you know, too, when, when you do historical fiction, you have to make decisions about what serves the story. So it might be a fascinating little fact and all that, which I loved as an academic, but as a, a writer of um, fiction, you, you must be entertaining at all times as well. So you can put all that really important information into a novel, but it still must be a narrative and keep readers' interest. So that was a real challenge for me. And I, I loved that sort of um, way of, I guess, mixing the two parts of my brain. And whenever I, like when I researched The Curse of the Bond Riders, which was my fantasy trilogy, um, it was sort of set in a Renaissance Venice and loved, loved, loved doing that. And readers really responded well to that. But it was my agent, the wonderful Selwa Anthony, who, um, when I was thinking about what to write next, said to me, Karen, how about you leave the fantasy? Because I think your real home is historical fiction. And turns out, <laughs> Selwa was right. She always is. And I've been very happy there. I just, I just love it. Okay. So no one knows your own novel as well as you do. So can you tell us about The Good Wife of Bath? Okay. Well, to understand The Good Wife of Bath, I have to go back a bit to Chaucer, though you don't need to have read Chaucer and The Canterbury Tales to appreciate the book. It's deliberately written so anyone who's never even heard of Chaucer can read and enjoy it. But basically what inspired it was um, Geoffrey Chaucer, who's known as the father of English literature, his Canterbury Tales, where basically 31, 32 pilgrims uh, leave from Southwark outside of London in those days to journey to Canterbury. And in order, where the shrine of Thomas a Becket, the saint was, and there they would uh, buy souvenirs and say prayers and ask for blessings, et cetera, et cetera. But it was a long journey. I think it was four or five days by foot on donkey and, and horse in those days. So basically their host, who was a real historical figure, Harry Bailey said, look, let's have a competition. Let's all tell a story to pass the time and the best story will win a prize in the end. So that's um, the Canterbury Tales is everyone telling a story. Those, some of the characters also get a prologue and what that is, they tell their own story and then they tell a tale. The Wife of Bath happens to be one of the very few pilgrims who tells her story and then tells a tale and her story is basically uh, her life, which is she was married five times, the first time at the age of 12, and she tells you she was married to three really old men and she manipulated them and got her own way and she, she boasts how she's great in bed and uh, she's a fabulous businesswoman, a, a very successful weaver, and she rises up the social ranks. And then her fourth husband uh, she married for love and he really hurt her, he broke her heart. And then she met her fifth husband, who was 20 years younger, at her husband's, fourth husband's funeral and was married a month later. But, um, and there was a bit of violence in that relationship, and, but it all ended well. Yet uh, when we encounter her in the Canterbury Tales, she's on the hunt for a sixth husband. So one imagines that it wasn't a happily ever after marriage after all. So what I did was I took those bones, if you like, and began to wonder what a genuine medieval woman's life would be like, what it would have really been like to marry five times and have all these different husbands and was she really as manipulative and boastful and vain as the poem makes out because she's also very clever and she, she basically overturns a lot of the very misogynistic texts, whether they were religious or philosophical, on their head and fires them back at the listeners who are mostly men. 
And certainly when the tales were released in the late 1300s, they caused ructions and it was the wife of Bath particularly that upset a lot of the listeners and readers of the time. And that, that you know, that's just too good a, to resist. I just couldn't resist her. Now, I must admit, I have not read the Canterbury Tales. I think we've all heard of them, but not many of us have read them. So when did you first read the Canterbury Tales, Karen? Yeah, um, I encountered them first in high school. And what's interesting about that is I don't think the teacher at the time quite realised how raunchy they are. They're very, very bawdy and raunchy, like sex features in a lot of them. And um, she'd be reading a translation out because they're written in the Middle English. And uh, it's, it's quite difficult until you tune your ear, but she was doing a translation and she had to keep um, pausing and altering her words every time um, well, tits and bums and farts and stuff were mentioned. And there was a lot worse than that, believe you me. And uh, we all got the giggles. And, of course, that just titillated these hormone-filled 16-year-olds. So as soon as um, I got home, you know, I, I pulled out my, my version and started reading it for myself. And I think that started it. And then I encountered them again actually when I was doing honours at university and I wrote an essay on what's called The Marriage Group which is, I think it's about four of the tales and, and um, the wife bus prologue and tale. And the wife captivated me, absolutely captivated me. And there's another, a little bit of a personal reason I think she did as well. Um, when I was in that classroom, there was a lot of mockery around how many times she'd been married and, and a lot of the students were passing judgment. And of course it was all negative. They maligned the woman. It was never about the man. And what people didn't know at that time was my mother had been married eight times. Wow. And as a child, I um, she already had multiple marriages when I was quite young, um, you know, my teens. And I was accustomed to hearing really negative things about her to the point I got, I never told people that how many times she'd been married. And uh, I had enough that particular day. And um, I just thought, why is it always from his point of view and never from her point of view? And I just wonder if somehow that little seed, you know, was planted and years later sprouted when I began to write this. I found I didn't do it deliberately. Like I didn't really deliberately uh, model her on my mother or anything like that. My mother was nothing like the wife of Bath. But um, I just found myself, after I'd finished the first draft, thinking a lot about my mother and the the derogatory comments and things that were levelled at her. And it wasn't just judgment at her, it was judgment at me and my sister, her two daughters, because, you know, if what what kind of women must we be or girls must we be? One, to have a mother like that. And and two, what, what, what was role modelled to us? Well, what was role modelled was don't tolerate bad relationships, but um, among many, many other things. But, yeah, so... I, I wonder too, I, I, that must have played a part. So not just the tales, but a little, little bit of my own life too. In your author's note, Karen, you say that The Good Wife of Bath was probably one of your greatest challenges as a writer. Why was that? Um, a number of things. Again, I love putting, uh, I guess, creative flesh on history's dry bones, but this was already a very rich literary character. And Chaucer is the father, known as the father of English literature. So it was, I didn't try and fill his shoes. I didn't want to fill his shoes. I wanted to put another pair beside them. And it's always a challenge when, uh, I guess, 
you're writing about something that's so well known or as you say you might not have read the Canterbury Tales but you know of them um there's expectations that are set but um it's a challenge that I I I, I hope I rose well I tried to rose to um but there was also a lot of personal stuff going on at the same time. And of course, the one thing we all experienced was lockdown and COVID. And I know people thought, oh, it must be great for you being a writer, you know, because you've got no distractions. Well, yes and no. Um, choice was removed and you had to be in your house and you had to be, uh, I guess, aware of, well, it was very hard to focus on the book because I was so aware of what was going on, not just mm. here in Tasmania, but of course on the mainland and with all my wonderful friends and family up there and what they are enduring and going through as well. And we have another business, our, um, my partner and I, my husband and I, and, um, you know, we felt the blows, that the financial blows, which then trickled down into emotional and psychological. Um, there was also uh, what my brother was diagnosed with a terminal illness at this time so he's still with us now but um it won't be for much longer so there was all those sorts of things too so yeah it was a it was a real challenge in many ways which is um doubly astounding to know all of that was going on when you read the good wife of bath and discover how funny it is so your late your last novel the fatal shore is a really harrowing read and i the, the women in scotland in, in that um, time in that book and, and the the witch hunts and how they were treated and just when you think that things are going to improve for them they get really bad again and yet through these most the most troubled times that you've had you've written a very funny book so is that a conscious choice no, um, I think, well, first of all, with The Darker Shore, um, the, uh, that was based on a true story and I stayed very close to the truth, except um, with the way the story ends. And I explained in the author's notes why I, I changed their ending. Um, so I had no choice but to be very dark and brutal and that was the reality that faced those women. With um, the Good Wife of Bath, of course, it, it was hard for men and women in those days. And I think, yes, with everything going on in my own life, I, I think it must have been a bit of gallows humour. <laughs> but not only that, Chaucer's very funny. He's incredibly funny. And the wife is funny in, in, in the tale too. Like, and, and part of it is she's so confrontational. And if you understand anything about that period of time, that just was women were meant to be quiet and submissive and she's anything but... So I'd read that and just completely crack up at some of the things she said. And and then, but then again, had to, that was beautiful poetry and 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 this this wonderful um use of language. But I had to translate that, I guess, into how a real person who traverses so many different um adventures and events, but also lives a real authentic life, how might they cope? And humor is her way of coping. And the wife has a big heart, I think, and that comes across too. And she doesn't just laugh at life um, and others. Most of all, she laughs at herself. And I think that's her saving grace through, through trials. And I think that's actually Australia's saving grace. I think our ability, we're not the only culture who do it by any stretch of the imagination, but um, it's the one I could speak to. And I think that we do have a great sense of humour and laugh at a lot of our trials and tribulations too. The language in this book is extraordinary and the, some of the phrases are just laugh out loud funny. But also some of it's quite confronting 
for modern sensibilities. So how did you choose how to use the language and what to leave in and what to leave out? Yeah, I, I is pride myself too strong a word? It probably is. I try to be as authentic to the era in every regard as possible, including language, but you'd lose readers if you were absolutely authentic. So yes, I select phrases and words that reflect best the story, the characters, and I love language. I, I, I'm fascinated by the way it evolves and changes. And of course, one of the, you'll be very tactful, Mary Lou, one of the great ways that we've changed with this book is, um, I, I won't swear, is the use of women's body parts uh, in the book, uh, the descriptors. Um, back in that day, in those days, there were many, many words for uh, our lady bits and they weren't considered rude or crude. The one that I'm particularly thinking of is the C word, of course. That was just a word that we, was thrown around in those days um, and not considered vulgar. And I think that, that says a lot about gender and, and sex and its construction throughout the ages that it's become quite a vulgar word that we're embarrassed about. But again, I felt I had to be true and it is a bawdy book that those words are used all throughout the poem, um, Chaucer's poems. So um, I had a lot of fun with that, I have to say. And I know um, swearing in those days was not how we swear now. Um, swearing, the worst thing you could do is to take the Lord's name in vain. And that was considered so blasphemous and outrageous. So forget the body parts and the lady bits. It's when when they take the Lord's name in vain that that's really the crude, rude stuff. A medieval person would be having conniptions, you know. But um, I had a great deal of fun thinking about ways to, uh, I guess, take the Lord's name in vain. May she forgive me. <laughs> I might, one of my favourites uh, in the book is Jesus in a basket. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Which is mixing your metaphors because, of course, it's meant to be Moses in a basket, but we all mix our metaphors, so it was a very deliberate one, yeah. yeah. Now, uh, in the book, Eleanor is married off at the ripe old age of 12, so we've been talking about how language changes and also social conventions change over the centuries. Um. But you've written her in such a way that it's it was hard for me to be perturbed about it, which I think is an incredible thing that you've done. It's just like, yep, she's 12, yep, she's getting married. Is that because the history of the time, it was just so usual for girls to get married that young? Yeah, well, firstly, phew, I sweated <laughs> over that. Let me tell you, at, at first, because I know the history really well and that period very, very well, I didn't bat an eyelid and because I'd studied the Canterbury Tales and wrote it, I hope, sensitively. I, I, I was very aware it was only a 12-year-old girl, but 12 back then when mortality was so high was, was a very mature young woman. That was the legal age that girls could marry, boys could marry at 14, so um, in that era, the black, what we now call the Black Plague had swept through the land 20 years earlier and culled so many of, um, well, I think a third to a half of the whole population of um, what we now call the UK and Europe had, had died. So people lived fast and, and, and died young, you know, not always, but in many things. So, yes, so this 12-year-old getting married to a man old enough to be her grandfather, um, I'm so relieved that you didn't feel uncomfortable about it. And it actually wasn't. Again, I was very aware of, uh, of it. I was 
thinking about how to do it. It was something that played in my mind all the time I was writing a scene. But again, if I changed her age, if I altered anything, I would have been doing the women, the girls who did endure, survive, enjoy their lives back then, a total disservice and injustice. So I had to be, again, authentic to the period. And it wasn't until one of my editors pointed out that some readers may feel really, really uncomfortable with it that I, we did have a discussion about whether or not to change it. And my publisher, Joe Mackay, who was just amazing um, and so supportive, we agreed, no, no, it, it wasn't fair at any level to change it. So I addressed it to a degree in my author's notes, but um, I, I'm, I think I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't, you know, with that kind of thing. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's not it's not an easy thing to do, but it was an important thing to do. And sorry, my labradoodles just come in to say hello to me. So. As they do. All hello, darling. <laughs> now, the other thing that you've done in The Good Wife of Bath is to use Chaucer as a character, or, or the poet as he's sometimes referred to in the book. And in The Chocolate Maker's Wife, one of the characters was the real-life historical figure and diarist Samuel Peppers. So what do you need to keep in mind when you're including these real historical figures in your works? Yeah, that's a great question. What you have to do is be completely true to them. And that's where you can't really deviate except in the fact, known facts of their life. So Samuel Pepys particularly was great because he, he left his diaries. So we have 10 years of diaries and what a weird, wonderful little man he was. What a perv. He, he was great to write. And he sort of really captured the, the cultural and emotional ethos of the period as well as giving little uh, factual things. He was like a combination of a nonfiction book and a gossip rag. He was just wonderful. So he, he was great to use. Chaucer was fascinating. There's quite a few gaps and omissions in his life, but I read about three or four biographies, including a fabulous new release. I'm just looking at it over there on my bookshelf, Marion Turner's Chaucer, A European Life, which came out just as I was starting to write the book and sort of do some, um, you know, in-depth research as well on Chaucer. So it was just perfect timing. So I do a timeline and I make sure that anything really important in their lives, if it's essential to the story is included and I had to do the same thing with the locksmith's daughter because one of the main characters is Sir Francis Walsingham who was Elizabeth the first spy master and an incredible human being in good and bad ways but um, Chaucer had an amazing life and he also had missing years and I think there's nothing an author loves better when they include a real figure when they see missing years so you can just throw in whatever you want so with Chaucer he had these missing years so naturally that was when he uh was involved in the wife's life when she was a very young girl so that was that was a gift mm. their little gift that, that um you know real historical figures give authors so Francis Walsingham had some missing years and I think he'd be rolling around in his grave like a rotisserie if he knew what I did to him <laughs> with his missing years <laughs> Uh, the Good Wife of Bath is written in the first person. This isn't the first time you've written a book in the first person. But how do you make that decision in which point of view you're going ah, to the story in? That is such a pertinent question at the moment because I have agonised over the book I'm currently writing and I've changed my voice twice now. But, yes, I think sometimes the story tells you how to write it and I found with The Brewer's Tale um, third person just didn't work. I did try it. It didn't work. 
Uh, locksmith's daughter was the same, but by the time I got to the chocolate maker's wife, I wanted that overview. I wanted that omniscient, omnipotent eye because I wanted to get into Samuel Pepys' head. I wanted to get into the, the heads of the various real figures that are scattered throughout the book as well as my own character. And I wanted readers and myself to be able to see her through others' eyes because there's sort of a little tiny bit of a fairy tale quality about that book, a dark fairy tale. Um, but, and with The Darkest Shore, it had to be third person. Wife of Bath had to be. Mm -hmm. um, she spoke in the first person in the Canterbury Tales. And um, again, it was playing with that mostly true story idea. You know, Chaucer wrote her as though that is her voice, that is her story, and it's true. But is it? Is it? It's a man putting words in a woman's mouth. So she became like a ventriloquist dummy. And she. it's really interesting because over the years, people have either seen her as, uh, or Chaucer too, as a proto-feminist, one of the early feminists standing up for women's rights and saying, I demand to be heard, whereas... Um, others have said, oh, no, what a misogynist. He just um, makes her the epitome of every single negative stereotype about women and justifies men keeping them under control and quiet and submissive and subservient. So there's this wonderful dichotomy in the way she's viewed. So I thought by using her, her voice, giving her a voice, an authentic voice, that people can make that decision for themselves. Mm. Yeah, but again, as I said, the book I'm writing now, oh, my goodness, I'm just struggling with, um, I think now I've got the voice right. And, yeah, that, that was a segue in between the two. But you're right, it becomes a very important decision. And then I think it guides how you tell your story. Mm. The Good Wife of Bath is a fabulous, fabulous book, I'd say, you know, probably my favourite read of the year so far. And uh, to finish up, on the Words and Nerds podcast today. Karen Brooks, why do you write? <laughs> I think because I can't not. <laughs> um, it's quite simple. My head's full of stories and I guess I want to share them. I just hope people want me to share them. <laughs> you know, you know, you can't not write. Like I know your story gripped you and wouldn't let you go and um even though I'm struggling with my current one, which is called The Escapades of Tribulation Johnson. Um, right, she won't not, oh, thank you. She won't not let me tell her story. So I have to get it right. So I have no choice but to write. Great answer. Karen Brooks, thank you so much for joining us today on the Words and Nerds podcast in this author takeover by me, Mary Lou Stevens. And thank you so much for The Good Wife of Bath and all your other novels. They're a real treasure. Oh, thank you so much, Mary Lou, and, and, and it's been my pleasure and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. We'd love to engage with you on social media. You can find the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Danny V Books Words and Nerds podcast. You can also subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stay safe and read more books.